0: Let's bow our heads now as we prepare ourselves to look into God's Word. Heavenly Father, as we come before Thee, it's such a joy to know that we have a loving Father that cares deeply, intimately for each one here. And not only for each one, but also has the capacity, the ability to care so deeply for everyone in this entire world from the smallest child, as we've just heard, to the oldest human alive. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we have such a God, such a a comfort and a support to our faith, to know that we worship a God so great that is able to hold all these things together, sustain all things through the word of his power, and knows each one of us intimately. Dear Lord, we are Conscious of our own failings our own faults We know the scripture says the prayers of a righteous man availeth much and yet so often we feel that Are we righteous enough to approach thee Do our prayers have any impact or or hearing with thee But Heavenly Father we do believe that according to thy word Every sincere prayer to thee has hearing from the blackest sinner to the holiest saint, if we will approach thee in humility, thou wilt hear us graciously. And so, Heavenly Father, we want to now lift up in prayer unto thee all those that are going through especially great difficulties and trials, uh, whether because of sickness, like young Jacob Weinhardt or uh, our friend Lily uh, Bouvet and uh, our sister Olga and others that we could continue to mention as we do every week in prayer meeting. But, Heavenly Father, we also want to lift up in prayer unto thee those that require spiritual healing, those that are dead in trespasses and sins and may not even know it. Heavenly Father, be gracious and hear our prayer on their behalf as well and speak to them, perhaps even now, in a special way that they would understand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Just as we were sitting here in the benches and I was looking for a hymn, uh, a particular passage came to mind. With the Lord's help, um, I'd like to read it. It's found in John's Gospel, chapter 14. John, the 14th chapter. It begins like this Let not your heart be troubled. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If he had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else, believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified, In the Son, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me and he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that, when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter, I will not talk talk much more with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. I've read the entire chapter.
1: Let's bow down and worship the Lord together. What a privilege it is, dear Heavenly Father, that we can crawl into your lap, into your presence, into your loving embrace this morning as your children, to be known of you, to hear you, to worship you, to give you all praise and glory. Father, we are so blessed. AND, LORD, THAT WE'VE HEARD THESE WORDS THIS MORNING, WORDS OF HOPE, OF PROMISE, THAT ONE DAY WE WILL BE TOGETHER AS A FAMILY, SIDE-BY-SIDE IN THAT BEAUTIFUL HOUSE, SHARING, REJOICING, glorying IN YOUR PRESENCE. Father, we ask for your presence this morning, that you would come into this place that we have set aside, at this time we have set aside, that we can experience your presence. Lord, that we would be moved and that we would carry your presence with us out of this place into the various corners that we go to that we could leave with our cups full, <clears throat> full of you. Lord, inspire the dear brother that he would be able to speak on your behalf, that that very same comforter would give him the words to speak. And that same Holy Spirit would apply the words unhindered in our hearts. Lord, you know that many needs that are in our midst and we just want to plead as a, as a body for those that are facing severe illness, we pray for Lily Bouvet, for, for Olga Ordag, for those who are struggling with old age and with uh, declining bodies, for recovery for little baby Weinhardt. And for those who've lost loved ones in the past, so many that have gone on to their reward, comfort them in their absence. And Lord, again, we have this peace that we know that one day you will come again and take you to yourself. Lord, what, what deeply, deeply burdens us is that there are those who will not be coming with us, those who do not have a place prepared because they have not prepared a place for you in their own hearts. Father, we just beg you that they would understand the urgency and the need to assure themselves of of your forgiveness, of of that heavenly invitation that we had accepted while it's called today because we know that window is short and, and all the things in this world that distract us and make us feel like we're building our own kingdoms are just castles in the sand, our own health, our money, our, 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 all the things we pride ourselves in are so temporary. Father, help them to see that and turn to you before it is too late, we beg you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: What other world religion or philosophy could produce something equal to a chapter like this. This chapter is too big for me. It has too much. I can't even really properly take it in. I don't even know if I'm beginning to properly process it. But I'm so thankful it's recorded there for me. I'm thankful the disciples asked the questions they did because they, I can relate to them. Begins with, let not your heart be troubled. There's a lot in this world to trouble our hearts. My heart goes out to Brother Ben and Sister Lori with their young son. It's one thing to grapple with a terminal illness when you're an adult. It's another when you're a three-year-old child and you're just starting to understand that things may not be getting better, but might be getting worse. What do you do in the face of that? Some people turn and shake their fist at the heavens and say, if there's a God, how could he allow this sort of monstrous cruelty? What makes you so sure you understand the circumstances to make that kind of an assertion? How inflated is your opinion of yourself? to think that you, of all people, understand the delicate balance of justice in the universe. It's true the world is full of pain. It's true that much of it seems to be unjust, undeserved. But what makes us think that we see it correctly? Those are big questions. Those are difficult things to wrestle with. But I think if you're truly honest, you really can only step back from the whole thing, believing in God or not, and simply say, I don't know. That's about all you can do. It doesn't make sense. But then the question is, how do you live your life? Where do you go from there? The, these, these questions, these, these things that demand answers, it's interesting to me that even the atheist would choose to charge a personality with cruelty over assigning just simply randomness to everything. If there is a God, how could he? We're, we instinctively look to a personality, to a, to a being, to explain things to us, to make sense of it. And here, in this short chapter, we have an answer. And this answer to me is more pleasing, more delightful to me than any academic explanation here. We have the personality explaining it to us and putting it all in context for us. You see, the world is an incredibly complex place. We are incredibly complex beings. And in order to survive in such a, um, a complex world and not be paralyzed, God has designed us in such a way that we have a way to make sense of the world in shorthand. So for one, one simple example is this. Our, our vision, our sight. Our cone of vision is quite large, you know, 100, 170 degrees, 160 degrees, something like that, including our peripheral vision. But our ability to focus is actually very, very small. I remember once watching a professional pickpocket explain how he practiced his craft, and he called it surfing your zone of focus. He would do something to distract your focus so that you would look there, and then at the edge of your focus, he would do something. And it was it was mesmerizing to watch this man empty this other man's pockets, take his watch, his, his cell phone, his, his billfold from his pocket, his wallet from his other inside pocket, and he told him he was going to do this. He just in, in, in such, a, such a practice, smooth way, and he explained the techniques afterwards. He explained how our limited focus can be distracted, and when it's distracted, what happens outside of our focus is, is where he makes his move. And I think that little illustration, maybe, helps us to understand a little bit about what our life is like down here. Our focus, our our, our cone of vision, our ability to make sense of things is so small. What makes us confident that we really understand what's going on in the big picture? How could one single person with a limited lifespan ever unlock the complexities of the universe? I don't know. I gave up trying because I found a solution in a personality. That explained not only what I could focus on, but also what I couldn't, what I couldn't contain. You believe in God, believe also in me. I've said it before and I'll say it again, I'm sure. The most important thing about us is what we believe about God. If our belief in God starts to approximate the greatness of who God really is, then these things can begin to fall into place. If our God is no bigger than us, it will seem, the world will seem like a monstrous joke. Christ came. Many will try to discredit or disprove that fact. Many claim, uh, even as other religions do, that the recording in scripture that we have here is uh, corrupted or embellished. But the fact you have to deal with, and really any intellectually honest scholar has come to this conclusion that there was a man probably named Jesus Christ, that did many of the things contained in here at a specific point in time in the Roman Empire because we see no evidence of him before, and in a matter of a very short time, this religion simply explodes in the Roman world. It spreads everywhere. There must have been a personality at the center of this. There's no other logical explanation. So, this man came, he told us about his father. How would you propose that an infinite, indivisible, eternal, all-knowing God would explain himself to people with such a small cone of focus like us? What would constitute a reasonable proof for his existence? How would you begin a relationship with people that have this handicap of such a small area of focus? You would have to send someone like them, wouldn't you? How else would you do it? It would have to be someone that could communicate to them on their level. And he would have to, or she, as the case may be, would have to somehow help you make sense with your limited focus of this creature that you could never fully focus on, right? So Christ comes as a man into the world and tells us about his father. I can think of no better way to explain the God of the universe to people that couldn't possibly hope to understand him in his full grandeur. Let not your heart be troubled. There's so much to trouble our heart, isn't there? Our heart is so easily troubled. And Christ tells us it doesn't need to be. Why? You believe in God. If you believe in a God that says, as, as scriptures proclaim him to be. Actually greater because it says words fail to describe him. That should cause trouble to cease in us. But Christ doesn't stop his words there. He doesn't just simply say, Look, look, believe in God. What's your problem? He's, he's, he's almighty. He's infinite. He understands everything. You can't tell anything new to him. He can do all things. End of story. Case closed. But look what he goes on to say. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. This father wants you in his house. He's inviting you. Now, of course, these words are only crude sketches of what the reality is. They don't even deserve to correspond really fully with that reality. We can't understand it. But look what he says next. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. This God is interested in relationship, as we all are. Humans are relational beings. When we look for answers, we look for answers from someone. Abstractions don't satisfy The answer must include relationship, or it's not a satisfying answer. Have you thought about that? The answer must include relationship, or it simply doesn't satisfy. This is why I think the atheists of this world, the only thing that they can really do is attempt to tear down, but they have built nothing in response. Nothing worthy of constructing a life upon. Simply, the only alternative is random chance and time. You're a bit of yeast that ferments for a while and then expires. Now build on that. Make a life on that. Love and live on that. Does it sound like a viable solution to you? And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And Thomas asks the obvious question, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Uh, Christ's journeyings and wanderings in Palestine seemed to be capricious. One moment he was going here, another moment he was going there. He was going through Samaria. He was bypassing the Samaritans. He was going to Jerusalem. He was staying away from Jerusalem. It seemed almost random, to use a common word of the young people. And he says, No, 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 you're not understanding correctly, Thomas. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way is with me. The way I'm going, you have to come with me. The point is not the location, the direction, or the journey, the point is the relationship. I am the way and there will be a culmination of that relationship when it all joins back together in the father and he says that I'm going away but I'm coming back to take you again I'd like to go a little bit farther down this chapter like I said this chapter is far too big for me I can't possibly hope to meditate on its full contents but I would like us to focus on a section of Scripture that, in light of our study of prayer, I think is a worthwhile use of our time here this morning. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. For a moment, pretend that you've never heard this chapter before. Simply read the words as if you're coming to them for the first time. Does this promise not seem incredible? Doesn't it seem almost too good to be true? A blank check, as it were, from the Son of Heaven? If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, some of you may say, wait a minute, are you teaching some kind of a name it and claim it gospel? Are you teaching some kind of a perverted version of the truth that says just call and God like a genie is going to pop up and grant you your wishes? Is that what you're saying, preacher? No. No, that's not what I'm saying. But one thing I have noticed, this was pointed out to me a number of years ago, and I really, I see it to be very, very true. The truths that are the most powerful and transformative for the Christian, Satan does his very best to discredit so that we will never, ever think to use them for ourselves. Do you really think the danger is that this church becomes Pentecostal in the sense of uh, some kind of a wild name it and claim it kind of attitude. I don't think that's a very real danger. It's like the equivalent of putting a cordon of policemen around a graveyard just in case the residents would rise up and get out of hand. No, that's not the danger here. We're very well aware of the danger. But are we aware of the promise? Do we make use of it? Do we think about it? Is prayer more of a last resort than the thing that's top of mind when we have trouble in this world? Let not your heart be troubled. Just ask. I think we're learning to do that in some ways. But there are, there are keys here, things that that are here, and people have gotten off track because of verses like this because their concept of God was too small. Their concept of God was incorrect. Listen to what Christ says. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That God is going to be magnified in Jesus Christ. That's going to be the end result of those things asked in His name. God is going to be magnified in Christ. Now, think of that in terms of our problems, think of that in terms of illness, seemingly cruel circumstances in this world, innocent suffering. God can be glorified in his Son through pain, through illness, and through difficulty as well. But our idea of God is too small for that. We say God can only be glorified by miraculous healings. Christ can only be lifted up when he does things the way that we expect. Is that true? No. think we realize that but do we trust him do we think that this world really is such a wonderful place that we should do everything possible we can to prolong our stay here is that really what we believe because sometimes we sure act like it or do we really believe that there's a place that he's prepared for us in the presence of his father that's so much better than this where's your faith what how do you understand this how big is your God? These are worthwhile questions. Other people in other places, other places have, had it, have had it much more difficult than we have. Pain and sorrow, difficulty and death were constant companions. My kids like to read. They read a lot of, especially the girls, historical fiction. They've read Little House on the Prairie and all of the sequential books from that. And, even though those books are only set some... 150 years ago or so, roughly, not that long ago when we're talking about history, you really get a sense of how different the world was and how regular, normal, illness and death were. How survival really was a struggle. And you were never assured of the outcome. We've become insulated to that, I think, through technology, through medical advancement. And now everything that seems to be the exception to the rule when it comes to health and wellness is viewed as some uncontrolled havoc. I'm not trying to make light of it, but I think our perspective needs, if we are not to be troubled, our perspective needs to be recalibrated. And with that recalibration of perspective, our prayers also will change, I think. And the power of our prayers will change. Because the first thing that prayer does, I think, is change us. God doesn't need to change nor does he change and even those places in scripture where it talks about him changing his mind they're for our benefit that we could understand that God looks to us for action and response he doesn't want us to simply surrender to a fatalism that everything is just simply going to proceed as God decrees and I have no effect on that God very much wants us to pray he wants to be entreated of us. He says in Isaiah, I look to be entreated of by you. And no one was there. Sounds a lot like our day. Our first response to calamity and danger is what can I do about it? If he love me, keep my commandments. Where do you start with that one? Those of us who have been baptized, those of us who profess to be Christians, we profess some sort of love, an imperfect love, I guess, of Christ? Do we keep his commandments? Is that something that we're conscious of? Do we realize that by obeying him and doing what he asks, that is the real profession of our love? for him? Let me ask you a question. We've been praying for many people who have serious illnesses, some which may be terminal. We ask for healing, and it's not wrong to ask for healing, to ask God to heal those loved ones of ours that are suffering. But the question we should ask ourselves is if I was in that circumstance, if it was me with the terminal illness, and I was praying to God for my healing, what would I do with the life that He gave me if He chose to heal me? We ask for healing, and when healing is granted, we seem to forget, don't we? What now? I think sometimes of Lazarus raised from the dead by Christ but Lazarus I'm sure once he was resurrected after perhaps a few days he realized also that well that death that resurrection was only a temporary one that death would one day come for him again and that there would be no Lazarus come forth in the way that Christ had healed him before. There is a resurrection at the last day. I'm not talking about that right now. But I wonder what he did with the second half of his life, if you want to think of it like that. It says, many believe because of Lazarus. How important, if you were brought back from the dead, how important would the temporal things of your life be in light of that healing, that resurrection. I thought about that for myself, that if God puts me in a position where I have some sort of a horrible illness, and if he cures me, what would I do? And then why aren't I doing it now? If he loved me, keep my commandments. Why do the little things bother me? Why do the little things steal my time? And the grand plans I might have of doing more for the Lord or other things get pushed aside. For the things that seem to be urgent. Why don't I labor in prayer more? Since I know it's something that the Lord delights in. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Do you catch how much is tied up in that? Especially in that last part. We kind of skip over that, don't we? And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. I had a discussion with someone uh, recently about how does the Lord answer prayers? That's a complex question. And I asked the question in return, well, how do you think he answers them? You know, well, through the Word, through the advice of other people, that's true. Sometimes through an audible voice, though I have never heard the Lord speak to me in that way. But do you realize that Christ manifesting Himself to you is contingent on you loving Him and keeping His commandments? When we think perhaps privately, shamefully to ourselves, that the Lord doesn't seem to answer my prayers. I don't seem to hear anything from the Lord. Do you love him? Are you keeping his commandments? You see the Father through Christ. The scripture also tells us that. You will experience him through Christ. And Christ will manifest himself to you if you love him and keep his commandments. But we know that's hard, so we avoid it, and then we wonder why Christ doesn't manifest himself to us. Why our prayers seem to be maybe unanswered, and our devotional time dry and barren. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. He said that a few times here in this scripture. Do you think about that? Keeping Christ's words, doing what he asks, the father loves you when he does that when you do that the god of all the universe loves you those words don't seem to cut it do they it seems a bit trite a bit small a bit sunday schoolish and yet it's written here the one who dwelt in the very presence of the father you ever think about that verse that says unto us a child is born unto us a son is given. The child was born, but the son was given. The eternal son who had no beginning, he was given to us. The baby came at a definite point in time. He had a birthday, as it were, but the son was given for us, to us, that we would know the Father and that the Father would love us through him. Is it any mystery then that the son would say ask in my name just ask the father loves you he's waiting to hear from you if you love me keep my commandments such simple things not unreasonable and so satisfying if we live them may the lord add whatever was lacking to what was said amen
1: Verse preceding, uh, one we uh, focused on here about asking in God's name says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Just as uh, the brother said, if you were to hear these words afresh, The promise, the potential that you can do greater works than Jesus, the the works he can do, you can do also plus more. It's incredible. Mind blowing, the potential. But why does it stay potential? Why do we not experience these things in our lives? We have seen these things come true in the Bible. We've seen these things come true in persecuted lands. We've seen these things come true in um, places around the planet. But I appreciate how the brother brought out that this power comes from asking. We need to ask, we need to pray, we need to be. And this asking is effective as we love God. Prayer is so important. And as we look at the opening words of Jesus' prayer, it's Our Father, which art in heaven. It's that relationship rather than the transaction. It doesn't start with the asking. It doesn't start with, with give me this and give me that. It starts with Father. And as we have that confidence, as we have that love relationship with our Heavenly Father, that we hearts don't have to be troubled. We have a peace this world cannot touch. We have a destiny to be with Him. And we have, have Him in us. My prayer is that as we leave this place now, we do not leave the presence of God. We take His with us. The presence of our Father because the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, sent in us to go with us that where you are, you can be the presence of God. In that house, in that circle of people, in those communications that you are the presence of God and that his power can do great things. And as we have that childlike confidence to ask, may we not leave this on the shelf. May we not just leave it in the book. May we not leave it as unrealized potential, beautiful words to inspire but may we take it with us and make it real in our own lives. That we conclude this morning service.